Well, we come now to a passage here that is really the very climax of history, right? the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. All of history was waiting for this moment. All of scripture was waiting for this moment. Since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we've been looking to this moment. And the Christian life is all lived out of this moment. The Christian is to be empowered and strengthened by this moment. This is indeed the climax of history. And the the cross is, it it was once a symbol of, of shame, something that was despised in the culture. In fact, uh, some have, have demonstrated that uh, it, it was impolite to even use the word in public. Even when they would sentence an individual to crucifixion, they would use a euphemism, hang him on the unlucky tree. So the cross was very despised by the people, and yet, for centuries, millions and millions of followers of Jesus have celebrated the cross. So we're in this kind of strange place here uh, because it is sort of strange, we should remember, to celebrate the death of Christ. And not only the death, but the form of death. As Paul says, he will boast in the cross. He will rejoice in the cross. He will celebrate the cross. You know, you go to funerals, uh, nowadays we, we go to funerals, and it's very common to celebrate the life of the deceased. You might even call it a celebration of life service, and that, that's very common. That, that's not what Christianity is about. We're not celebrating the life of Jesus, as Paul talks. We're celebrating the death of Jesus. That's, that's very strange. Or consider if I told you a story about a friend that I had, and we were having a dinner together, and uh, we were enjoying each other's company, and uh, suddenly we, you know, we went off for a walk, and suddenly we were swarmed by a group of people, and it was uh, leaders of our community, and they kidnapped my friend. They took him in through the night, uh, made false charges against him, beat him, mocked him, and they hung him from a gallows with a noose out there in public for the whole community to watch. And they mocked him and smeared him all along the way. And that was about 10 years ago. And I stood here and I said, man, I rejoice in the death of my friend. And not only do I rejoice in it, but I actually wear something that signifies the form of his death. I I keep a noose with me so that I always have that reminder and I celebrate this. You'd probably probably look at me and think you're very sick, right? There's something wrong with you, and that that would be right. And so it, it, it can be a very strange thing to really think about, that Christians think about the death of Jesus this way, and we celebrate it. And the only reason to do that is if something so significant happened at the cross that it wasn't a tragedy, It was the triumph of the ages. And so for the next uh, two sermons, uh, we have two guest speakers the next two weeks, but we'll get back to the passage uh, in two weeks. Uh, We'll we'll take a look at some of the things that, that Mark highlights in here of what was so significant about the cross. Uh, Today we'll see uh, the theme of shaming. The, The cross indeed was shame. 
and we'll also see the darkness. But we must consider that Jesus, uh, as the uh, author of Hebrews tells us, uh, endured the cross, despising the shame of the cross, because of the joy that was set before him. There was joy on the other side. And so for our passage, we might say it this way, that Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was on the other side of the darkness. Jesus endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was on the other side of the darkness. Uh, Part of the danger for us today, I think, and for the next couple weeks as we think about this, uh, is is probably more of the danger of being too used uh, to the passage. We're too too familiar. And so we have the danger of it not landing on us afresh and new and let it really lip dripping down into our soul. So, for example, uh, perhaps some of you were driving around yesterday or two days ago, and you saw some of the snow on some of the trees, and there's this thought went through your mind. It's like, look, that's so beautiful. And probably, at best, three weeks from now, if it happens again, you'll probably, at best, say, oh, okay, and you just kind of keep going. You won't really, it won't catch your attention. But at worst you'll actually be frustrated by the snow because it's kind of becoming an obstacle. And sometimes we can actually get that, that way. We get so used to the cross, we're not enthralled by it, we're not amazed by it, we're not captured by it, and we just kind of want to get onto the juicy stuff. Teach me how to do this. Teach me how to do that. The cross, brothers and sisters, is at the very heart of everything for us. And may God give us hearts to be able to just pause and experience the scene as Mark paints it. So we'll walk through the the scene, uh, see the shame of the cross and the darkness of the cross this morning. Let's uh, begin in verse 16 again. And the soldiers led him away uh, inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him, uh, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to be crucified, or to crucify him. So that if, if you have the ESV study Bible there, that's, that's a good heading there. Jesus is mocked. Uh, if you remember uh, back in verse 15, we're told that Jesus was scourged, uh, Prior to this, the scourging or the flogging, uh, that would have been uh, oftentimes happened with someone crucified. Not all the time, but the, the flogging would have been, you, you have whips, uh, and on, at the end of the whips you use, uh, put on pieces of bone or metal, and you whip the person. And uh, apparently sometimes people would die before the crucifixion, actually, because they would whip them so bad that the skin would just be kind of hanging from the back. Oftentimes the bone was exposed, and which we will see later, uh, Jesus could not carry his uh, cross, which was very custom, customary to make the crucified carry his own uh, beam uh, that's going to be hung up. But So Jesus had already been scourged, and then if you see verse 16, they bring in a battalion of soldiers. Battalion would be around 600 soldiers. doesn't mean that all 600 are necessarily there, but you're, you're talking a huge group of soldiers, and their goal now is to simply mock Jesus, to make sport of him, to be entertained by uh, hurting him. And so they, they strip him of his clothes, put on the purple 
cloak, which is it's meant to be royal royalty. Uh, purple is an expensive uh, garment, and so they're they're going to mock him uh, and put on a crown of thorns. You know, kings wear a crown, so they're trying to mock him and say, you know, here's your crown, there, buddy, and it's meant to also inflict uh, pain on him. But all the while, they're I like how Jess uh, read that when she read it. Say, hail, king of the Jews. They're, they're mocking him. And so the way it might, might have gone is, you know, one, one soldier's, hail, oh, oh, great one, hail, whack, with the reed, hits him on, its, on the head. It says, meanwhile, another soldier, <laughs> gathering up a bunch of saliva, waiting for it to, his mouth to get full and <laughs> spitting on him. And then another one, Oh, great one. Oh, aren't you so powerful? Oh, you are, we give you, you are full allegiance. Whack. And more spit comes. And on and on it goes because they're having a great time. They're enjoying this. Until eventually it gets boring and they've had enough and they put his clothes back on and they send him out. So their, their whole goal here is to, to shame Jesus, is, is to to mistreat him and to make him feel absolute shame. Well, it goes on. Uh, Like I said, oftentimes the person being crucified would carry their own beam uh, to the crucifixion. They would carry it through the city as a way of mocking them again uh, in front of everybody. But uh, we have this interesting insertion here in verse 21. They compel the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So this is an interesting uh, little piece of information. We don't know anything about Simon or Alexander and Rufus. Uh, it's most likely we're told uh, about these individuals because they actually did become followers of Jesus. Uh, presumably the early audience, the first audience, knows who these people are, and that's why Mark is naming who they are. And so... Most likely, they became followers of Jesus, and it would have been considered an honor to carry the cross of Jesus. Right, so this, this is considered something very special for these individuals, or especially for Simon here, for carrying the cross of Jesus. So think of it this way. You know, when uh, Packer's training camp uh, happens, you, you, many of you know the, what happens, right? The, I don't know if it, it's from the locker room to the stadium or from the stadium to the locker room or maybe both. Uh, little kids will line up with their bicycles, uh, to where a packer will grab one of the kids' uh, bikes and he'll get on the bike and ride his the kid's bike all the way to the stadium. Meanwhile, the the child you can watch this on the news is carrying some of the gear for the Packers. Now, kids will line up for for a long time for this, and there'll be a huge group of them just waiting to be selected. Because what an honor to carry some sweaty sweaty gear by a packer, right? I mean, it's it's sort of gross, but yet it's it's an honor. And they will remember that for the rest of their life. And, and here is, is something of that happening. Simon actually carrying the cross, which again is very strange if you view the cross the same way the, the culture did at the time. Because the people, uh, care, the people in the crowd that day, they wouldn't want to carry that cross. In their mind, carrying the cross for someone, that would probably be a little bit more like, you know, if you were asked if, if you would carry the casket of a serial killer. You don't want your name attached to that. You don't even want to touch that. And yet here, this is an honor for Simon to carry 
the beam of the cross of the Lord. Boy, that cross must be very special in what it accomplished. Now, Mark moves on uh, from that insertion, uh, verse 22, and he continues about the mocking. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, and that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so again, here, Mark, just notice how much ink Mark is trying to spend on this, the mocking of the Lord. We're told here in verse 25, it's the third hour. So here, this is about 9 a.m. in the morning. The zero hour zero starts at 6 a.m., which they actually, uh, they, they do this in Addis Ababa, uh, uh, Ethiopia, actually. So they tell time this way still. So uh, it's 9 a.m. in the morning when he actually is put up on the cross. We're told that for three hours then he hung there. Uh, Mark doesn't go into uh, the experience, uh, most likely because the culture knows that. They don't have to be told that again, uh, of the pain and the, the gasping for breath that would uh, be taking place. You know, the, the cross was considered such a horrible form of torture uh, that it would be extremely, extremely rare for a woman uh, who was to be uh, killed uh, by capital punishment uh, to ever be crucified. In fact, when they did ever uh, have a woman crucified, they would oftentimes turn her backwards so that the, cult the culture could not stand to see it on uh, a woman. Uh, oftentimes, the, the bowels would um, just break open and, and the person would be hanging up there, oftentimes naked, or just very little clothes, so they're fully exposed, and their feces is laying on the ground, their urine is underneath them, it's a pile of their own blood, and everybody's mocking them. This, this is, it's, it's all aimed to, to torture and to mock the individual. And, I, you know, I, I feel like, like one of the more shameful things even, all the more, is that you're all alone. Everybody in that crowd is enjoying this. They love to see you hanging there in pain and agony. Now, I know some of you enjoy the sport of like ultimate fighting and stuff like that, or to watch. It's a, it's a sport that I've never been able to understand uh, because I try to avoid getting hit. So it's, it's not something that I would want to do. I've been punched in the nose a couple times when we boxed when we were kids, and that was the end of my boxing career. It, it hurt too much. Like, I don't want to be punched. But one of the things that I always found uh, all the more why I would not want to participate in, in boxing or ultimate fighting is because if I'm losing a match, I'm already in pain. And meanwhile, everybody watching is cheering that I'm in pain. 
And it's not only the people that are loyal to the person that I'm fighting, but a lot of people are there just simply to watch a good fight, and they just love seeing someone get hurt. And so now I have this whole crowd of people cheering that I'm losing, and I'm, and I'm in pain. I, I just find that very shameful, and I feel all alone. And this whole scene is, is meant to drive uh, the person down and wear them down, even the, the dividing of the garments right in front of the individual. The last belongings that they have, we're just going to kind of play sport with them. And, you know, oh, who wants this? Ah, ugh, okay, you go ahead and have that. It's, it's all meant to shame the person. Now, as followers of Jesus, one of the things we want to do is, is actually ask the question, like, like why, is, why is this happening? Because the reality is, is we want it to land on us, that the reason that Jesus is going through such shame is because our very sin. The only way for us to be redeemed and rescued from the punishment that we deserve, is if this scene happens. Christ must undergo this shame if we are to be set free and forgiven by God. It is our sin. And so we don't want to just shrink away from this. We want to look at it and say, that, that's, that's, that's me. I'm the reason why he's experiencing this. So you, you might think of, uh, let's say you were going to the hospital to visit someone who was just in a tra uh, tragic accident. And they lo either lost a limb or they, uh, they lost their eyesight forever. And, and it's just, it's very, very sad. You, you, can, you can understand showing up to the, in the hospital room at that time, just it being very emotional and hard to, to, to work through, right? But let's say you, you showed up there and you knew that the person who lost a limb or lost their eyes, uh, they, they lost that because you and that person were in an unfortunate accident. And it was, it was a fluke accident. You know, you, you both slipped on ice and your cars hit, but, but you were the cause in some respect, even though it was an accident. And that emotion now gets a little bit heavier because you, you know you're involved in this. Now, now, let's say you showed up and you were going to visit this person and it was actually, maybe it was somebody you knew. And it wasn't actually a fluke accident. But you were distracted texting on your phone. Or maybe you dropped something while you were driving and you quickly thought you could go grab it. And suddenly it's not an accident, it's just carelessness by you. This person now is not going to see for the rest of their life because you were, had this moment of carelessness. Suddenly the emotion gets a little bit heavier. And we could go on. Brothers and sisters, the reason Christ is experiencing this is because of the sharp words we share with one another, the lustful fantasies that we have, the ways we dishonor parents, the way we dishonor one another, the way we grumble about life, our pride, our selfishness. This is, this is meant to be a sobering picture for the Christian. We shouldn't just disdain what they did to Christ. We should disdain that our sin has Christ encounter this. And yet, we still hear that voice of the author of Hebrews. It brought Jesus great joy still to encounter this. Not because 
This was great. He despised the shame, but for the joy that was on the other side. He didn't go through this begrudgingly for you, believer. He did it with great joy. Not because you're great, but because he's merciful. And he loves you with an undying, unchanging love. Not because you're going to be better next week, but because you're so bad that you need forgiveness. And he's willing to do this for your sake. So you can be right with God again. So it's meant to be a sobering uh, picture of the shame of the cross. Let's take a look at the darkness. Doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but it's worthy reflecting on. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was great darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness. So one, one, as, as we think about this, you, we should even just begin and, and just be reminded that uh, God intends for creation to speak to us. Right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or Psalm 50, the heavens declare God's righteousness. Or Romans 1 talks about his eternal power being on display by creation. Jesus says, look at the lilies. Look at the, look at the birds of the field. They're, supposed, they're proclaiming to us that God provides. Right? So creation is meant to speak. And here, creation is meant to speak to us. God turned out the lights that day. If you notice there, it's the, now the, the sixth hour. So the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour. Three hours have gone by. It's high noon. This is when the sun is at its peak, its brightest point. And bam, the lights go off. Now, this, if, if you can try to imagine yourself there, this would actually be quite terrifying. Uh, we had uh, in fall ball, one of my softball games in the fall here, uh, we were playing a night game, and uh, the lights just totally turned off. Uh, actually, I was, I was coming up the bat, actually, and all of a sudden the lights go off. And you can hear on the video that everybody's like, ah, you know, and some of us just getting around, but some of us just like, you're kind of shocked. And, you know, it's nighttime, so it just goes dark. But of course, there's street lights and stuff around. But there's this sudden like, whoa, what happened? And we know it's the electricity, right? There's nothing crazy. You're talking about the sun that has existed from the beginning of creation just went totally dark. The sun is turned off. This would be absolutely terrifying. Now, creation at this point, the darkness is proclaiming something. So it's an actual event. It actually happened. The question is, what is it proclaiming? So it's functioning symbolically for us, and that's what we have to uh, figure out. There's really a couple options that you have. Uh, the first one uh, would be that the, the, the darkness is proclaiming the day of evil. So evil and Satan and wickedness is throughout Scripture described as the darkness, or you, you think of Colossians, he got transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So in one sense, this could be God declaring through the darkness, this is evil. The, the innocent, sinless son has been falsely accused and being mistreated. This is wicked. Another option could be that it's, uh, it, it's proclaiming sorrow. This is a day of great sorrow. Uh, Jeremiah uses the imagery of, of the sky going dark because the whole earth is mourning. So this would, this would be similar to the wicked uh, idea, but this would be God declaring 
to the people there that this, this is a great day of great sadness. And all of creation joining in, this, 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 this brings deep, deep sorrow. The innocent son falsely accused, mistreated, and the earth is weeping. The whole cosmos is weeping. And, and we talk about both evil and sorrow like that, and even in our days still. You might refer to cert, certain times in your life when either it's, uh, you know, you're just not following the Lord or it's you're, you, you experience deep sorrow where you just say, those were, those were dark days. And so that's very much in our culture still today. So that that's certainly could be options. I think that's probably less likely. Um, it, I think it's probably uh, meant to communicate the day of the Lord. Now that has two sides to it. The day of the Lord that brings judgment and the day of the Lord that brings salvation. It's, a, it's both a day of gloom and a day of glory. So the prophets... Um, are often talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the, the eschaton, the last day when God comes to destroy his enemies and to restore his people, to destroy those who have rejected God and restore those who are waiting for the Lord. So here, here are a couple of passages. This is from Amos. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness. It's not light. It's as, it's as if a man was fleeing from a lion and a bear met him. Or Joel, uh, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And one more, it's F and I, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter, the mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So, so there you, you hear that theme. The day of the Lord is often talked about as a day of darkness. So this, if this is accurate, then this would be God declaring to everyone there, the day of the Lord has come. God is coming to wipe out his enemies. And on the flip side, the day of the Lord has come, God has come to bring salvation, to bring restoration. Because the same prophets also describe the day of the Lord as a day of uh, God healing his people, restoring those who are waiting for him. Even one author says, God singing over his people. God will be in the midst of his people. So the picture then is God coming and he wipes out all of his enemies and he dwells with his people. And I think that's actually what is meant to be pictured here. Now, there's a couple other things to wait to think about this. Think about if you're watching some action movie about like, you know, you're following around some special agent. You know, some sort of guy that he's, he's always can, he can take out a, a group of people at any, any, you know, all he needs is a little piece of paper or a pencil or something. He can kill everybody, right? If you're watching one of these movies and, and somehow he, he got caught by a group of guys, the, the, the bad guys, and they got him in a room. And there's six of them or ten of them. They're kind of all crowded around and they're interrogating him and he's sitting in the chair and you can kind of see a light, uh, the light switch behind him. And he's just sitting there thinking, looking around the room. And all of a sudden, he quickly goes, bam! turns off the light by the back of his head and the, the screen goes dark. You hear a little muffles. It goes on for about a minute. What are you expecting is going to be the scene when the lights come back on? You're expecting to see all the bad guys on the floor dead. 
Now, if you think about what's going on in this scene, the, the Apostle John in his gospel, John 19, he paints the picture, if you remember this, of Jesus hanging on the cross. This is before the lights go out. Hanging on the cross. He's talking to some people at the, at the foot of the cross. You remember who that was? Uh, Mary, his mother Mary. Mary Magdalene is there, also there. Also, the Apostle John is there. And you remember, he's, he says to, to John, Behold your mother, referring to Mary. Uh, and behold your son, referring to John. Right, you remember that scene? Now, what we have in this scene, uh, after the lights go out, you see in verse 40 and following, Mary Magdalene, that group, has moved away from the cross. Now, why, we don't exactly know, but it's very possible, I think probable, what happens as the lights go out, and you know the history of what the, the day of darkness means. It's, this is the day when God comes and brings his wrath to destroy his enemies and restore his people, that they seem to have moved away from the cross, get us away from the group, because God's judgment is coming. And so what would you expect to see when that light turns back on from the sun and God turns back on that light? What, what do you think they're expecting to see? Probably all God's enemies wiped out, laying on the ground in a pool of their own blood, and the Son of God standing victorious. But that's not what happened. In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? The lights do go back on at one point, and the sun only has a few more moments before he's actually dead. So what happened to the day of the Lord? Oh, it happened. It just happened different than we may have anticipated. See, the judgment of God did fall on his enemies that day. We're told that Jesus bore our sins on his, in the, on his body on the tree. He who knew no sin became sin. The judgment of God did fall, but it fell on the Son because the Son of God took our place. God's judgment was coming for sinners to wipe them out and destroy them. And that, in fact, happened that day. But it landed on the sun because he took it our place. Brothers and sisters, we see the day, the day of the Lord worked out here because the Son of God took the wrath of God and it pleased the Lord to crush him so that God could win us back and bring us back. So what we see here is not only the judgment of God displayed in the darkness, but we see the salvation of God, the salvation of God's people. The darkness is something we therefore sing about. Because in, in the darkness, the day of the Lord displayed that we are set free. And this, brothers and sisters, ought to bring stability to us. Stability to our hearts. And it ought to bring celebration. If this is true... If the Lord Jesus faced the darkness so that we will never face the darkness of the wrath of God, this is the greatest news for our soul. You know, if I were to think about uh, things that I would love to hear, some good news, I could, I could have a good long list of categories. I'd love to hear good news about the future, both for myself or for my kids. I'd love to hear good news about health. I'd love to, to hear good news about relationships, finances. We could, we could come up with this nice long list. I'd love to hear good news in all that category. And really, there's some of those, if you just give me a couple, a couple of those, that would just put a little bit of wind in my sails. But 
Here's the reality. If I heard good news on every single line item, and yet I had to face the judgment of God, what did I gain? A mere breath of fresh air. That's it. That's why Jesus says, what good is it a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit your soul? You will have gained nothing. But on the flip side, if we get not a single drop of good news in any of those categories, and yet the darkness has been faced for us, what do we have to lose? Our soul can rejoice at that moment. It's exactly what I think the psalmist does in Psalm 13. I love this one. It's a psalm of lament. He begins talking about how, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long am I, must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Before my enemy says, I have prevailed over him. But I have trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If I have salvation and the Lord has dealt bountifully with me, and in the end it will work out for my good, then regardless of what happens today, I can rejoice. And brothers and sisters, the cross is that for us. If the cross truly won our salvation, then come what may in our days, we can rejoice. And with that, we will turn to the Lord's Supper and we'll remember uh, the very reason why we celebrate and think about uh, Christ's blood being shed and him encountering all the shame is because of our sin. And yet we also remember that because he completed the work, there is not a single drop of the wrath of God for you. If you're here this morning,